Well, this morning we're continuing in our series on the church. And as Pastor Scott Crouch has just alluded to, this morning we have the opportunity to talk about church membership. We face a very strange day and time that our grandfathers would not have faced when we talk about church membership. It seems that church isn't all that cool, even with people who are Christians anymore. You see, the problem between our day and the day of our grandfathers is this. We acknowledge that God made certain things to function certain ways. For example, we know that a fish really doesn't exist in any other context except water. No matter how hard that fish desires or perspires to exist outside of the water, it's just not going to happen. God designed fish to live in certain ways, and they can't change that fact. In the same way, God has designed Christians to be a part of a local church, what we call membership. Yet today, most people who call themselves Christians never attend and evidence no commitment to the local church. As a matter of fact, here's an interesting statistic. The average Southern Baptist, Southern Baptist church has a membership of 233 people, 70 of which actually show up for service. About 70% of a church's members never worship with the church. And so today, we have, to, we, we have become the proverbial fish out of water. Just as a fish should be in water, Christians should be in the church. And in our day and age, it's, it's, not, that we, it's not that we despise the church. But for whatever reason, other things have crowded it out and choked it out. And instead of lamenting the fact that we don't go to church, we celebrate the fact that we are not. So this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at a kind of a non-traditional passage for guidance and direction as to how do we respond to this? How do we think of the church and church membership biblically? And so in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we'll see something very interesting this morning. Paul was addressing a very specific problem within the Corinthian church. The believers there were fighting over the issue of spiritual gifts. And Paul addressed this issue uh, rather specifically nearly 2,000 years ago. I think we'll be surprised that as we look at God's timeless word that we will find surprisingly relevant application today in our context. And I I begin with our, our first point, which is this, that God has with great intention, not by accident, with intention, designed the Christian life to be a kaleidoscope of various gifts. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God 
who works all things in all persons. So we look at verses 4 through 7, and we see something interesting about the structure. You'll see a table that will pop up on the screen here in just a second. You see this specific repetition. There are varieties of gifts, varieties of ministries, varieties of effects, but it's the same Spirit, it's the same Lord, it's the same God that is in charge of all of this. Well, as we start to examine this, we understand a little bit about what Paul is talking about when he talks about spiritual gifts. What in the world is this that he's talking about when he talks about varieties of ministries and varieties of effects? Well, let's take the gift, spiritual gift of teaching, for example. That is the gift. How, how is that manifested in a variety of ministries? Well, if you have the gift of teaching, who do you teach? Maybe you're a seminary professor and you teach pastors in training. That's one way the ministry of teaching is made manifest. Now, we have a loyal, faithful, and capable group of ladies that regularly teach our children. Teaching children and teaching seminarians are two very different ministries that use the same gift. But there are a variety of ministries in which these gifts are played out. And the truth is there are a variety of effects. If you are someone who utilizes your gift in a small group or in a one-on-one setting, you may never get public credit for doing what you do in secret. It always seems like the people who do things publicly are the ones that get held up. And the truth is, gifts and ministries will have different effects. Some farmers, when they toil, see a great crop. Some farmers, when they toil, using the same methods, see a mediocre crop. But the Lord is over everything that happens. There is no rivalry, but a chance for the people who minister one-on-one and the people who minister on a more public platform to reinforce each other in ministry. The thing that Paul is making emphatic are two very special emphases in this passage. You see in the chart that we just looked at that it, he says specifically, it's the same Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. It's the same Lord, referring to Jesus Christ. It is the same God, referring to God the Father. And the first emphasis is this, that there is unity and diversity in God. God is one, but he is three persons. God is one in three. Diversity and unity are a very part of God's own character. And so in the church, we should celebrate the fact that we don't all look alike. We should celebrate the fact that we don't all have the same gift. If we all had the gift of teaching, but none of us had the gift of mercy, we'd be a church full of jerks. We need different gifts. We need to celebrate the fact that God has made us the way that he has. Here's a way that one writer put it. In the church that God has made to be a um, varied group of people, the unity of the Trinity should be on display within the context of the diversity of our gifts. Are we going to let the fact that we are diverse in our gifts and our personality destroy the unity that we're supposed to display like the Trinity? Diversity and unity are essential for a healthy church. And Paul wants to make very uh, careful application that Christians, while gifted differently, are supposed to be united. The second thing that I think that's interesting uh, emphasis in this passage is on the disbursement of the gifts. I don't know if you saw this in verse um, 
Oh, verse 7. We didn't read verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Two things about that simple little verse that are worth us considering. Number one is that gifts are given to individuals. The Bible says specifically that they are given to each one. We believe that God has given every Christian a spiritual gift. God has specifically and explicitly and individually gifted people. That's a great thing. Don't allow that specificity and individuality to ruin what the second half of verse 7 says. To each one personally, individually, specifically, explicitly, is given the manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the church, for the common good. And so in this disbursement of gifts, they are given to individuals, but they're not given to individuals to be used individually. Private gifts are perverted gifts. If God has given you a gift... It's designed to be used within the church. And the church will suffer if a member is not using their gifts. And so Paul illustrates this uh, in a great way in verses 8 through 11. He goes through this whole list of gifts, and it looks like proverbial Christmas. There's gifts everywhere. Look at what it says in verses 8 through 11. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. Now, I read uh, habitually from the New American Standard, uh, very literal in their translation. And if you listen, your copy of the Scriptures may not translate it precisely the same way, but as you listen, there was this repeated phrase all throughout the passage, to another, to another, to another, to another. And the point here is that we should not become morbidly fascinated with this list of gifts. Paul is here not trying to give us an exhaustive list of all the gifts that are. He's not trying to write a theological research paper on what these gifts are. He doesn't even explain them. He just says, here's the gift of tongues. Well, what's the first thing we want to do? What's that mean? Well, what does Paul say? He doesn't. He just says the gift is there. And so Paul is not trying to teach specifically on spiritual gifts as much as he is trying to say God is a gift-giving God who gives all kinds of gifts. And as a matter of fact, you ready for a list? To another, to another, to another, to another, to another. God gives all of these things. And so he is not trying to carefully work out what the spiritual gifts are. As a matter of fact, nowhere in the New Testament does Paul explicitly lay out all of the details about the spiritual gifts. There are four different lists of spiritual gifts. And you know what? In the New Testament, none of those four lists are the same. Wouldn't you think if Paul was an organizer, a systematician, that the list in Romans would be the same, Romans 12 would be the same as in 1 Corinthians 12, and in Ephesians 4, uh, and then in other places when he talks about spiritual gifts, he would list them the same way, he would call them the same things. There's not even the same number of gifts in each of these lists. 
So Paul is just saying that God is a gift-giving God, and he doesn't just get you a gift card. He gives you something specific for you to use. He's not a bland gift giver. He is a God who gives in great variety. The point here is that God wants his church well-rounded. And in the margin next to point number one, in all caps, you could write the word variety. That's our first point. God gives a variety of gifts for his church to be healthy. But our second point is this. God has, with similar intention, grouped these various gifts together into one unified and coherent body. God has, with similar intention, grouped these various gifts into one unified and coherent body. If the main point in verses 4 through 11 was on variety, you wrote that in the margin. Next to point number 2, in all caps, write the word UNITY. That's Paul's emphasis in these, po- these, these points. Now, here's the thing that's kind of interesting. We understand variety. Anybody eat at a cafeteria? We like variety. We want to pick and choose a little bit of this, maybe get three desserts, maybe no vegetables. Um, that's how I roll, kind of like that. Um, I, have the, I have options. I like this. So when we talk about variety, one of the things that's kind of strange is as a parent, as an educator, just about in any walk of life, we teach our kids at a very early age to sort things. How do you sort things? Well, you sort coins. Put all the pennies over here. Put all the nickels over here. Put all the quarters over here. Learn to distinguish. We, we teach them to sort colors. We teach them to sort shapes. Put all the triangles over here, all the circles over here, all the squares over here. Because sometimes when you put a bunch of things together, they don't work real well. When I like my gifts, and I perhaps underappreciate your gifts, it might be tough for us to coexist in the church. But in spite of all of the variety that God has given us, He says we're supposed to work together as a functioning body. And so while we understand that sorting is important, listen, we sort for Sunday school. You probably, everyone in your Sunday school class is probably within 10 or 15 years of your age. You don't get to pick and choose your Sunday school class. It's chosen for you. You're sorted based upon age, based upon demographics. Sorting is a part of life. So when we talk about unity in these passages, what in the world is our unity based upon? Well, Paul gives two very helpful teaching tools to talk about the basis of our unity. And the very first tool that he uses to teach us truth is anatomy. He uses a word picture of anatomy. Look at verses 12 through 14. He says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. He's talking about the fact that just like in our own physical anatomy, we are one body, we're one person, but good grief, we are complex. That's why we pay doctors lots of money. Is they figure out, if you got a problem over here and we do this, it's going to create a problem over here. If we give you medicine to treat this, you might end up with kidney problems. You don't have any kidney problems right now, but if we're going to fix your toe and give you medicine, your body's complex. It's made up of many different parts. 
I'd wager that if we were going to be specific about all the parts of our body, we could not do it in the time that we have remaining for our sermon. How small do you want to get? Do you want to get down to the cellular cellular level? Our bodies are complex. And consider the human body. Our body, though many members, many components, demonstrates this amazing harmony, this incredible interrelatedness in this symphony of movement. Scott just talked about how (laughs) doing the hokey pokey, you put your right hand in. Your right hand really doesn't have a choice about it. It's going because your brain tells your hand, get in and shake all about. And it does it. Your hand doesn't go, I'm going to be the foot. It just doesn't do that. When you sleep at night, this is going to freak some of y'all out. Okay, this is just kind of stuff I think about. (laughs) I don't have to think about breathing. Isn't that an amazing thing? I don't have to think about breathing. My autonomous nervous system will take care of that for me. Check one thing off your to-do list for the day. Guys, you're, you're making progress. You are breathing, and it's done, and you don't have to ever worry about that. You can check it off your to-do list forever. Have you ever thought about your blood coursing through your body? That on anybody's to-do list today? Better be, because if it doesn't, you're dead. But your body takes care of itself. He has built these interrelated systems to work. And just as our bodies work like that, the body of Christ, the church, should work in the same way. And so on a practical level, we need each other. And verse 12 summarizes it really well. Even though the body is one and yet has many members, all the members are one body. We're diverse, but we're united. The second tool beyond anatomy is theology. He says theology is a good thing for us to consider when we think about how we function as a body. If you pay attention to verse 12, let me read it one more time and listen to the end. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. What in the world does Jesus have to do with anatomy? He's drawing this illustration that our bodies are one and yet many, and then he says, so is Christ. Well, what is this? What's this whammy in the middle of this anatomy lesson? He's talking about the body of Christ. Just as a physical human body works on this principle of diversity and unity, so does the body of Christ. Colossians 1.18 says this, that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And the truth is, when we talk about the church, you cannot separate Christ from the church in the same way that you cannot separate your head from your body. If you separate your head from your body, you're dead. If you separate Christ from his church, the church is dead. And so the truth is, without the head, the members of the body might still be organized. You know, the hand's still connected to the arm. The arm's still connected to the shoulder. The shoulder's still connected to the torso. The body might still be organized, but without the head... It is not an organism. It's not living. When you hear the statistics, what's going on in our churches? You have to wonder if there's any head connected to those bodies at all. In the same way, if a part of your body is cut off, following this whole idea of unity and variety, if a part of your body is cut off, two things will happen 
if it's not reconnected quickly. Number one, that body part will die. Number two, the body will lose some form of functionality. Can you lose a hand and still live? Absolutely. You might not be right-handed anymore, though. You might have to learn how to do things a little bit differently. And so he's talking about the body of Christ. So on a practical level, we know that just as our body exists because of everything that's in it, on a theological level, we are family. God has grafted us together to be a local expression of the gospel. It's called a church. So there are two equal dangers to unity within the body that I think are obvious right here in the passage. In verses 15 through 20, we see a temptation to disengage. In these verses, look at the problem that Mr. Foot and Mrs. Ear have. It's pretty obvious. And here's the thing that's really strange. Both Mr. Foot and Mrs. Ear have an eye problem. Look with me at verse 15 and 16. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if Mrs. Ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. Did you catch their complaint? Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just a stinky foot. I, because I'm not an ear, I must, I must not be part of the body. What's the problem? I, 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 I. Because I'm not this, I must not be a part of it. It's, it's a strange thing. Because here the foot, which we all know is necessary for a body to work effectively, is saying, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body. That's nonsense. He, uh, he's threatened diversity by implying that everyone should be like the eye. Saying, I, I, I don't really like being a foot. I didn't choose it. It, it kind of chose me. And man, if I was an eye, I'd really be a part of the body. But because I am what I am, they don't need me. And so the temptation is to disengage. And Paul addresses this. And he says, listen, too much of a good thing is bad. Look at verses 17 through 20. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member... What kind of body would it be? But now there are many members, but one body. This is pure sociology. Whenever you put a group of people together in any kind of a group, there's some kind of hierarchy that develops. There's someone who becomes the the chief spokesperson or the comedian or the social calendar planner person. And as that pecking order starts to flesh itself out, There's some sense of jealousy. Man, I wish I could plan stuff like he does. Man, I wish I could cook cook like that person. Man, I wish I could speak in front of people like that. And there's this envy. There's this rivalry. There's this jealousy that sets in. And Paul brings some theology in to settle this practical sociological problem. He says that God in his wisdom has designed a fully functioning body. And a fully functioning body needs all the parts. Not a single function monstrosity. You see the picture of Mike Wachowski, one of my kids' favorite movies. He's a big eye. Now, he listen, he's got feet and a mouth and a hand, but the dominating feature of this little cartoon character is he's one big eyeball. And when we despise our own gift and say, if I was something else, then I'd be something else. 
we're tempted to despise how God has gifted us and to disengage from the body. Bob says, don't do that. Don't disengage. Don't discount your gift. God gave it to you. You have a function to play. But the other danger is just as tempting. We see that the second temptation in verses 21 through 26 is a temptation to despise. Look at what Mr. I says in verse 21. In verses 17 through 20, the person has a pity party and says, because I'm not something else, I'm not a part of the body. Well, look what Mr. I says in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. The eye says to another body part, you know what? You're really not all that necessary. When God was giving out spiritual gifts, you must be the gallbladder of the body of Christ because we can live without you just fine. You know what? I think you've got the spiritual gift of appendix, uh, being an appendix. What in the world do you do anyways? You just make people sick. <laughs> and people can function just fine. That's off limits in the body of Christ. We cannot threaten unity by despising the gifting that God has given to other people. You cannot say this. And so Paul launches into a lengthy argument about how we're supposed to function together. Uh, Read with me verses 22 through 26. He says this, On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become more presentable. Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Paul gives us instruction here by saying, how do we treat weaker and less honorable members of our body? Well, the weak and less honorable things of our body are necessary. Listen, we've already alluded to this. You might not think about your appendix. You might not think about your pinky toe. Or you might not think about your teeth all that often. But if they act up, you don't underestimate them anymore, do you? Have you ever stubbed your pinky toe in the middle of the night? I have never taken gymnastics, but you sure can't tell in the middle of the night. I'm on one foot. <laughs> it's a balancing act uh, like you've never seen. I don't think about my pinky toe until something goes wrong. So you don't underestimate them when there's a problem. I have um, whacked my thumb with a hammer. I mean, really. Whacked it. Concerned that I was going to look down and have a very upset stomach when I saw what I have done. Fortunately not. I am glad that God has so arranged my body that that can't happen to my heart or my liver. I can't whack my heart with a hammer because God has so taken what appears to be a weaker part of my body, it can't function well on the outside, and he's wrapped it in a rib cage. It's about the best defense my body can provide for a less honorable, weaker member of my body. 
So when Paul goes into all of this, talking about how do we treat weaker, less honorable things, he's designed the body to care for those things that appear weaker. We bestow more honor to make things more presentable. Things that are more honorable don't need more honor. Think about this. We don't typically cover our head or our face. We kind of like it. We get offended, ladies, if our husband doesn't recognize our new haircut. Is that a new color? Is that a new length? Guys, listen. Just say it about once every two weeks just to be safe. (laughs) You'll be good. We don't need to honor our head and our face more. It's there for everyone to see. Maybe some of us would benefit from covering up a little bit more. But we don't cover our head and our face. We don't need to give them more honor. They're already there. We honor our midsection by covering it up. We bestow honor on those things that are not public parts. They're private parts. And in the same way, we care for our body in the church by caring and putting more abundant honor on the things that are maybe not in the limelight all the time. Just like with your gallbladder, whatever it does, we, we care for it. We protect it. And so both disengaging and despising the gifts that God has given us threaten the unity of the church. And it's important for us to know that unity is not the same as uniformity. Think about this for a second. A football team. Every guy on that team. And there's a small football game on TV tonight. Um, every member of the football team wears the same uniform but they don't all play the same position. In the church, we're not saying everyone has to be exactly the same way in their gifting. We need to be on the same team. We're not all in the same position. And so there are some really important ways that this applies to Northside Baptist Church as we talk about this thing we call church membership. So you may be asking, what in the world does this mean for Northside? How does this apply? Well, I ask a couple questions in your bulletin. Do we really believe the Bible enough to do the hard work of functioning as a body. There are people who have labored here for a long time and never been thanked. You know why? Because the service that they do, it's kind of like the gallbladder of the church. Nobody sees what they do. And they're content to not be recognized for their service. As a matter of fact, if we called them up on stage and thanked them for their service, they'd be upset with us. But on a personal, individual level, we need to do a better job saying thanks. There are some people that are never elected to a team or a committee who have the spiritual gift of encouragement that our church would die without. Your gift doesn't mean that you need to be up here singing a solo or preaching a sermon. It just needs to be functioning in the body like the blood runs through our body. It just needs to be natural and normal. So are we ready to celebrate the many gifts that God has sovereignly arranged in our body? Are we ready to encourage the discouraged? Are we ready to protect the weak? Are we going to function as a unit together and celebrate wins as a team win? We don't want to go, hey, great for the youth ministry, but, you know, what's happening with our senior adult ministry? Hey, great for the children's ministry, but what's going on with our Sunday school ministry? Any win is a team win. When the wide receiver scores the touchdown, the offensive line gives each other high fives because they blocked well enough for that play to happen. The quarterback gives a little gung-ho because he threw a good ball. The, wide, the running back appreciates the fact that he made a block on a blitzing linebacker because even though his role may be seemingly insignificant as one player on a team, it is a team win. 
So I ask this question, how does being the body apply to church membership? Paul was addressing in the church at Corinth a problem. There was division in the church. And I'm here to tell you that there is division in Northside Baptist Church. It's just that our division is far worse than anything that happened at Corinth. You see, what happened at Corinth was people would show up to church to fight about spiritual gifts. With 618 members at Northside Baptist Church and only 200 of them ever showing up on any given Sunday, our members don't even care to show up to church to fight about anything. Seventy percent of our members are missing. And we habitually call people members who have cut themselves off from the nurture, the admonition, the care, and the ministries of the church. I gave you the statistics for the average church in the Southern Baptist Convention. 233 members but only 70 present, which means basically 30% of their members actually attend on any given Sunday. I'm here to tell you we've got good news. When you divide 200 members by 618, um, we've got 2% more than average in our worship services. 32% of our members are present on any given Sunday when we worship. I think there are two options that we really have to think about. How did things get this way? And two word pictures kind of came to mind. And the first was, if we're going to take this whole idea of being a body is instructive for us functioning as a local church. The first thing that came to mind was the game Operation. Anybody played Operation? Here's here's the, the teaching point. In the game of Operation, you are trying to remove as many body parts as possible without getting zapped. I got caught. Listen, if 70% of our church is missing on any given Sunday, our body is on life support. Would you agree? That's a problem. And so I'm sitting there scratching my head going, how can we do what Paul is saying? Be united and 70% of us never be present on any given Sunday. So, well, we function as a body. We seem to be okay, so it can't be operation. Put an X through that. The other option is not that it's that we're playing the game of operation, it's that we're struggling with obesity. Now, I don't know whose dog that is. (laughs) He needs to go for a walk. We have been, perhaps, lax in holding people accountable for commitments that they have made to their local church. We have been lax, perhaps, even in admitting them. And so here's a solution that I think calls for action. I ask the question, what seems to be the problem? Well, the problem is not being Baptist. Listen, I I just gave this statistic that uh, on average, the average Southern Baptist church only has 30% of its members showing up on any given Sunday. That is not how it was for our forefathers. The Baptist contribution to church life has been a thing called regenerate church membership. You are not born a member of Northside Baptist Church, are you? Was anyone born a member of Northside Baptist Church? No. We baptize you as a believer in Christ. We don't baptize you as a baby and call you a church member. You have to exercise personal saving faith in Christ in order to be a member. 
That's a good thing. We actually believe people who are members of the church should be Christians. And all God's people said, amen. That's a good thing. So being a Baptist is not the problem. We believe in regenerate church membership. And a hundred years ago, every Baptist church in the country had an attendance that exceeded their membership. Okay? Listen to that again. Every Southern Baptist church had a attendance that exceeded their membership. Because our forefathers knew that membership implied some kind of responsibility. And in our day and age, we call people members who evidence no care, no concern, no commitment, and no responsibility for this church. I think it's fascinating that given our mode of operating, with 400 of our members absent on any given Sunday and 200 of us present, if those 400 got ornery and wanted to vote us out, they outnumber us two to one. Now, they wouldn't do that. They don't care to come to church. (laughs) They're not going to come here for a business meeting, of all things, if they're not going to come here for worship. So the problem is not being a Baptist. The problem is not our constitution and bylaws. As a matter of fact, oh, where did I put it? I have the statement on membership of Northside Baptist Church's constitution and bylaws. And it clearly articulates that there is both there are both privileges to church membership, but also responsibilities. Our constitution and bylaws believes that if you're a member, you're gonna come. You're gonna participate. You're gonna help pay the bills. You're going to serve in ministry. So the problem is our practice, how we handle membership. We don't practice accountability. And listen, I want you to hear very clearly, I'm not preaching this message with any ill will. The problem we find ourselves in is the church's problem as much as it is the individual's problem because we have allowed them to get to this state. So friends, anything we say, it's not about those people in here, at least partially it is. It's partially about us. Like I said about a fish out of water, a Christian out of the church is not a good thing. We've completely ignored the role of the church in our spiritual growth. We have people that run around habitually assuming that everything is fine with them and God when they don't care about God's people and they don't care about Christ's bride. That doesn't make sense to me. We have allowed people not to be responsible. And we call them members still. And what has gotten so strange about this is we live in such a politically correct world now that we can't even call someone irresponsible without being accused of meanness. When all we're doing is recognizing that we have members on a roll that haven't been here for 30 years. All we're doing is recognizing how people have already removed themselves from the church. And for sentimental, not biblical reasons, we include them as members to a membership that doesn't mean anything. I'm convinced as a pastor, and I'm convinced as a people, that we believe that membership matters. We believe there's accountability to us functioning as a body. And the truth is, do we want to have a country club mentality 
Or do we want to have a body of Christ mentality? Friends, is it important for all of the parts of the body to work together? Yes, it is. What are we saying about the 70% of people that don't function as a part of the body? This calls for some serious questions. According to our passage, if every part has a role to play, why do we have so many parts of our body that are completely inactive? This definitely goes to the non-attendee, but to the attendee as well. God has not given out the spiritual gift of pew-sitting. That's not a gift. All of the lists that are there, I've never found it. It's in no concordance. A Christian without a ministry is an oxymoron. Now, we need to be very careful. That doesn't mean that you need to start changing diapers every week in the nursery. There's a story told that the members of a body got very upset with the stomach because it only seemed like the stomach was just enjoying the food that Mr. Teeth and Mr. Throat sent down to it. So to to sort Mr. Stomach out, all the rest of the body says, we got it. We're going to starve Mr. Stomach. Well, what did they do? They enfeebled themselves by what they were doing. The point is this. There are some people who have gifts that are not in the limelight. The point is, are you functioning as part of the body? Are you finding ways to serve in ministry? Number two, if the gifts were given for the common good, as Paul says here explicitly, how do people who do not attend contribute to the common good? You guys know what a pastor search committee is. You just formed one. That's why I'm here. The truth of the matter is we need a congregation search committee. If there's 618 of us, where in the world are we? Paul's main concern in this entire passage is unity. And how can people who don't attend demonstrate any unity to Christ or to Christ's people? They are not united to us. And here's the thing that's puzzling. We haven't changed our location. We haven't moved. Who's moved? They have. We haven't changed our address. They know where we're physically located. It's just not important enough for them to come. Now, in most Southern Baptist circumstances, we just plant another church when there's controversy. So maybe at our next business meeting, we could start a church plant called Bedside Baptist Church. And I know a guy named Pastor Pillow that would be absolutely delighted to, to preach. Amen. It'd be the most popular church in town, wouldn't it? Bedside Baptist Pastor Pillow. So there are serious things. If non-attendance is the norm for church membership, what are we saying to a lost and dying world that it means to be a believer? If these 618 people represent Northside Baptist Church, are you proud of how they represent your church by not attending? And listen, it's not our role as a church to be offended. But it's not just that they, they represent us. Who else do they represent? Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, membership should mean something. And there is no doubt that many of the folks that are inactive here are active elsewhere. But for whatever reason, they're on our rolls. The truth about church membership is that when it's practiced biblically, it allows the church to be a visible body making the gospel explicit to the community. And when we allow people to be members who never do anything that the Bible says that they're supposed to do, what kind of change do we say that the gospel produces in a person's life? Friends, church membership and practicing it biblically puts the gospel at stake. 
Because if we say that the gospel doesn't change your life, then we're not preaching the gospel. In conclusion, I think there are three things that we need to affirm together. Listen, there is no way to solve issues that have been latent in our denomination and in our church for decades. But we can resolve to think biblically and to prayerfully consider how to change lack of commitment. So number one, I would say this. Church membership carries with it tremendous blessings and privileges. And it is sad to me that this blessing is kept from people who should know better. These people know that they should be in church. They know that there are blessings that come. There is fellowship that is sweet. There is encouragement that is mutual. There is teaching that can help them to live as they're supposed to live. And they've cut themselves off from that. Folks who are inactive are missing out on tremendous blessings. And I think you know that already. You're here. This is proverbially preaching to the choir. Number two, when it, with a sermon like this, it's easy for the boo birds to come out and say, you know, the church is trying to act as an enforcer. Isn't there a chance that we offend people by calling them irresponsible? I mean, that's what we're doing. They're not taking responsibility for the church. Well, friend, if that's your objection, wouldn't not acknowledging their irresponsibility make us irresponsible as well? To say, the gospel makes a change in your life that should be visible to other people. And when you don't attend, what change are you showing? Active church members do no favors to inactive members by keeping them on the roll because it makes membership meaningless. And beyond that, third and finally, we must believe that the church exists primarily for the glory of God. Not for our traditions, not for our sentimentality. And if we do not understand the church's existence as primarily for the glory of God, we will get everything else that we ever do completely wrong. Because God's reputation will not be at stake. Our convenience and our own personal convictions will be it. And so friends, I I say this because as we're talking about the church, this is the biggest issue facing churches in our country. For more than a decade, at every Southern Baptist Convention annual meeting, resolutions have been passed for churches to do something about it. The problem is the National Convention has no power to enforce this. Local churches must take up the mantle and address this and say, what do we think this means? And I stand here as someone who is firmly convinced and convicted that reclaiming an accurate and biblical understanding of the body is the key to revitalizing God's church. It is a key to making the gospel clear, and it is key to glorifying God in the church. And that should be everybody's primary consideration. So friends, what do we do this morning? How do we handle a message like this? Obviously, you guys are here. My challenge to you in response is to not just simply be here because this is your habit on Sunday morning. Be present when you're here. Be mindful of the fact that you're here not just because your mom and dad drug you to church, young people. Be present because this is what God wants for you to be fully engrafted into the body of Christ. So friends, church members, choir, you guys get it. How do we get people who perhaps are even on our roll and know things about the church, how do we help them to get it?
Our mission is redemption. And sometimes the best fishing hole for us to go redeeming fishing is our own church role. It's sad that it's that way. But unless we do something about it, we are telling people that have no gospel change in their life that everything's okay because they're a member. So friends, it's a call to action. Where do we go? How do we do this? No idea. But if we're going to take 1 Corinthians 12 and understanding that we're to be unified as a body, I don't see any way for us to be faithful to being unified as a body when 70% of our members are missing. So I pray that you receive this with the spirit which, which, with which it was intended, that you understand the spirit. This is not mean. This is gospel-centered. This is saying we've got to make the gospel clear, even to our own people. I pray that you'll join me in seeking to make the gospel explicit in the lives of our church members. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, I, I, I have prayed out of conviction. And I, I pray that as I've spoken, Lord, that by your spirit, you have helped people to hear something that is difficult. There is nothing more than, that we want than for all of our members to be actively engaged as being your body in this world. And Lord, for whatever reason, we have completely divorced any responsibility for the church from the privilege of church membership. Lord, that doesn't work well in our families. It doesn't work well in our marriage. We can't enjoy the privileges of marriage without the responsibilities of marriage. Lord, it's no different in your bride. So Lord, begin in our hearts and in our minds to fix this problem. Make us prayerful. Make us deliberate. Make us redemptive. Help us to do what we need to do, even in our own families, to win back people who apparently have not made the church a priority. May it not be. Lord, we can never be faithful with the gospel around the world if we can't be faithful with the gospel in our own zip code. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.